tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. To sell the land to a developer would be like a parent selling one of their children. So this is actually a miniature replica of what you did for the Queen? Yes. Tell me about what it was like when she walked up and, and saw your artwork. Well, I loved to see her reaction because she loved the work and she said she loved it. So that made me feel so happy and you could just see, you know, in her eyes that she was really taken with it. When the protagonist of a well-written novel is, is afraid, your heart is beating faster, right? When the protagonist has something horrible happen to them, you are crying. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We begin tonight with a story about one of the toughest jobs in the country, dairy farming. Farmers are up before the sun rises and often work until sunset. Many milk their cows twice a day. In between, there are fences to be fixed, hay to be baled, and field work that needs to get done. Many farmers put in the hard work despite not reaping a profit. But as we found in our continuing Green Seeker series, a love for their cows and the land is not enough to stem the tide of disappearing dairies. I like what we do. I don't particularly like doing the same thing every day, which was kind of silly for me to marry a dairy farmer because that's what you do every day, twice a day is milk. But I love this man. A self-described city girl, Jane Escobar says she long dreamed of working on a farm. Come on, don't you know you're on camera? A life in the country became a reality when she met her husband, Louis Escobar. The two married in 1986 and have been working on Louis's family farm in Portsmouth ever since. I was born on a dairy farm, one of six children, and I had a love for the cattle and what dairy farming was all about. And I have lived my life's dream to have my own and to be able to keep the family farm in existence in my lifetime. In 2015, he was involved in a tractor accident on the farm that left him seriously injured. Still, he remains active. Jane Escobar says her husband calls the shots from his wheelchair. He's in charge of everything, and um, I do what I'm told for the most part. <laughs> Louis Escobar's father bought the farm during the Great Depression. Over the years, Escobar Farm has grown to 98 acres. Was it harder than you thought it would be to keep the farm running? It has become more difficult every year, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. What do you mean by that? More challenges where people drink less milk. Fluid milk consumption in the United States has been on the decline for more than 70 years, according to the United States Department of Agriculture. It's made it increasingly difficult for the Escobars to make ends meet. 
They're one of 10 remaining dairy farms in Rhode Island. And I can remember one year we were losing about $7,000 a month. And you were, we were getting to come out here and work 12 and 13 and 14 hours a day and losing $7,000 a month. Are you still losing money? To We're still losing money, yes. The dairy farmer does not generally control the end price of his or her milk. It's controlled by the federal government. That's far different than almost every other crop that is grown, and that's a big part of the equation. Ken Ayers is the chief of the Division of Agriculture and Forestry at the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, or DEM. Rhode Island as well, over the past you know, 40 to 50 years, saw a sharp decline in the number of farms in the state, driven by a bunch of other reasons. Development pressure in the state is incredibly intense. The average cost of farmland around is the highest in the country, and typically that's the case year after year as measured by USDA. On average, an acre of farmland in Rhode Island is worth $17,500. And not only is the land expensive, but it's also hard to find. Land access is probably one of the biggest barriers to farming here in Rhode Island. Andrew Morley and his wife, Laura Haverland, run a small dairy in Little Compton. They say their biggest stroke of luck as farmers came when they spent time with the family that owns the land, which was once a dairy farm. And it took maybe a year and a half of driving up to Rhode Island and meeting with them to talk about our visions for the future and what we're gonna do with our lives and as dairy farmers, for them to get comfortable with the idea of them leasing their family's dairy farm to us. and. We are so grateful to them for that. It's a life they dreamt of while living in New York City. Laura Haverland worked in marketing, Andrew Morley in finance. In 2011, they decided to move to Rhode Island and pursue a life of greener pastures. You both are living in New York City, working, have, I can say, comfortable jobs in New York City. Yeah. Why leave that behind to go become dairy farmers? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were both, we both of us knew we didn't want to sit behind a desk for our whole lives. Um, I think we were just drawn to doing something more active. And we were both especially interested in food, like from an eating perspective, mostly. Prima. At Sweet and Salty Farm, the husband and wife team is raising a herd of grass-fed Jersey cows. They have a creamery on site where they process their milk into yogurt, and cheese. We saw that there was this different wave happening of people's interest in like handmade and artisan foods and that the American cheese making scene was kind of starting to explode but that there really wasn't much going on in Rhode Island yet. There were a lot of new farm, like great farms in New England but Rhode Island in particular didn't really have anybody doing what we are doing now. Laura Haverland oversees the yogurt production. She works with a small team that makes the farm's plain whole milk yogurt. And Andrew Morley is the cheese maker. He creates a variety of artisan cheeses that are sold at farmers markets and to restaurants in the region. I think both of us really love having the connection to our customers and seeing them really enjoy our cheese and yogurt and hearing about that. Yeah, I mean, it's all a lot of hard work, but it's all really satisfying when it goes well. And when customers appreciate your hard work and your products, it makes uh, all the hard work seem like it was pretty easy.
They say one reason for their success is avoiding commodity pricing by not selling milk. We would stand no chance at having a viable business if we were uh, farming the way we farm and selling our fluid milk to the commodity market. We didn't grow up on farms. We're not multi-generation knowledge recipients. Yeah, the folks that are still dairy farming in Rhode Island have like a ton of our respect because what they do is really difficult and we would be huge failures at that. Ken Ayers of Rhode Island DEM says the future of dairy farming in the state looks similar to what Sweet and Salty Farm is doing. Nationwide, cheese and yogurt consumption are on the rise. I don't see fluid milk being the basis of the survival of dairy farming in, in the state. It would be part of it, but I don't think that's strong enough to just keep dairy farms uh, in itself without a, a lot of diversification of product. The Escobar say diversification is the reason their farm is still in business. A corn maze every fall brings in much needed revenue. Why do you think your farm has managed to survive when hundreds of others have not? I was so determined that even in the most difficult times that we could survive and many other farmers chose to give it up and tremendous pressure by developers to sell the land to a developer would be like a parent selling one of their children. That's how close I feel to this farmland. But certainly you've had those offers. Many times. Before much of their property became protected farmland, they say they were offered more than $10 million. And so I now have the development rights that have preserved it for perpetuity. So you can do, doesn't have to be dairy, but any other form of agriculture or anything that's open space. And I'm happy I've done that. Louis Escobar is 83 years old. He doesn't dwell on his age, but acknowledges the mental and physical drains of life on the farm. Have you guys talked about how much longer you plan to work the farm? <laughs> Why do you laugh? Till we both give our last breaths. That's what it, that's, that's probably it. Up next, with the recent changing of the guard in England, many have been pausing to reflect on the life and legacy of Elizabeth II. Tonight, a local artist recounts her own moment with the monarch when she made a lasting connection to the queen. I would never have dreamed I was going to be at the UN or beat the Queen. It never crossed my mind. Queen Elizabeth has been very much on the mind of Ocean State artist Mimi Samus, especially during the recent solemn farewell to the long-reigning monarch. Samus created a bronze statue deemed fit for a queen during her Golden Jubilee in 2002. So this is actually a miniature replica of what you did for the Queen. Yes, peace had come, and they were all dancing and celebrating that peace had come to the earth. Tell me 
about what it was like when she walked up and, and saw your artwork. Well, I loved to see her reaction because she loved the work and she said she loved it. So that made me feel so happy and you could just see, you know, in her eyes that she was really taken with it. And of course it sticks in your mind because it was a, it was a life changer. Because, in what way? Well, when you met the Queen, people think you're special. That's what it basically comes down to. And they think your work is special. Like an endorsement from royalty. Yes, exactly. Getting a nod from Queen Elizabeth was a crowning moment for Samus, who says she wanted to be an artist from the time she was a little girl. I used to think, oh, if I could only be an artist, I would be so happy. I wanted to be an artist. I thought that was like the highest thing you could do was to be an artist. That high calling became reality. You may have walked past her creations when you stroll along the wall at Narragansett Beach. The exuberant figures of families seem to be caught up in the ocean breeze. Samus also sculpted the salute to women in the military at Rhode Island Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Exeter. Hi, I'm Mimi. Today we're going to paint the incredible colors of sunrise, so grab your paints and let's get started. You might also remember Samus from her series on Rhode Island PBS, Love to Paint with Mimi. I'm a shape maker. That's what artists do. They make shapes, they create color, they do all these incredible things. Oh, I love to paint. Samus says as a young artist, she feared her work wasn't good enough. It was her grade school teacher's praise of her talent that boosted her confidence. I decided it was much better to go for it and not do it right or to fail, but you never fail if you keep doing it. It's, you know that story about it took Edison 10,000 tries to make the light bulb. And you wouldn't say he'd done nine. 9,999 mistakes. You say he's moving closer to the success. Samma soon found the artistic success she was seeking. She primarily worked in watercolors. However, a pivotal moment in her career came in 1979 when her husband died in a car accident. She grieved the loss by learning to sculpt at a school in Mexico. I think the creative arts are an incredible way to heal. Incredible. And I was actually running away from his death because I couldn't process it. So I wanted to go to Mexico because I knew no one would know me there. No one would know of his death. And then I started, you know, sculpting down there. And I started sculpting these angels. And the bronze angels took wing. They fill her studio and keep her company as she molds new figures. Samus sculpts them in heated wax. Working by hand, they take shape before your eyes. Later, they will be cast in bronze. It seemed like a div divine destiny for you to kind of go into sculpting. That was all so divine because I ran into this woman who was a friend of my son's. She worked at the United Nations, and she saw my sculpture, and she said, this work needs to be at the United Nations. So it was just like the door opened up, and I had that show within nine months. She says her sculptures for that United Nations exhibition were inspired in part by the rhythmic waves along the cove outside her studio in Narragansett. I think you see that there's a whole pattern with the ocean, with the tides going up and down. It's almost like a breath when the, the waves are coming in. And if you can still the mind, 
you can connect with this beautiful, beautiful energy that gives you peace. That fit the theme of her exhibition at the UN in 1999, 1,000 Years of Peace. I think that partially it is because of that St. Francis prayer that says, make me an instrument of your peace. And there are so many things that can go behind peace. It could be love, or it could be forgiveness, or truth, or harmony. The UN show caught the eye of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey. He was there. And he said, you know, we have a niche in Lambeth Palace, which is the seat of the Anglican Church in London. And we have a spot to put a piece of sculpture. Would you be interested? He wanted, he wanted a, a globe with a hand, hand of the creator under the globe, and then these dancing figures on the top, pieces come. The Archbishop commissioned the work and was dedicating it to Queen Elizabeth for her role as head of the Church of England. And it was the day that the church was honoring her that my sculpture was presented to her. And it was a garden party. <laughs> it was really lovely, you know, and she was so lovely. Is that moment frozen in time for you? Absolutely. Did you discuss the topic and how it was, he's got the whole world in his hand? I did. We, just, we talked about that. What'd she say? She just said... She really, she kept focusing on the sculpture and she kept saying, I really like this sculpture. I like, the, I like it, what it stands for, something like that. I mostly remember just her presence. And of course, she was such a lovely woman. She was very, very attentive. She was very smart, but most of all, she just felt she was very compassionate. You know, someone told me she had very few days off recently. You know, she had something like three days a year that she didn't do work. So she was committed. It's that type of commitment Sama says she tries to create in her own work. And the sculptures surrounding her property certainly reflect her dedication and celebration of life. There are free spirits dancing in the breeze, a towering mother of hope looking out to sea and sky. Even her own five grandchildren, larger than life, prancing on the rocks. So many of my figures have these upstretched arms. So it's almost like they're going into another dimension. They're rising up. Think of the Olympic stars when they win that gold medal. They're all like this. It's really an opening. And I just think it's such a beautiful thing when people open up to something positive. And now, an adage that many authors subscribe to. Write the book you want to read. It is something that rings true for Rhode Island-based and Indian-American writer Padma Venkatraman. While Venkatraman long dreamed of becoming an author, she took a detour of sorts, sailing the seas as an oceanographer. But writing was never far from her mind, and so was her desire to share what she describes as the sea of stories within her. I always wanted to write books that could be accessed by young people. I, I don't know why, but maybe because they have this passion and I think that we've messed up the world quite a bit and if anyone's going to fix them, it's going to be the young people. Author Padma Venkatraman has been writing works of fiction for young adult readers for more than a decade. Her five novels transport readers to India, where she shines a light on marginalized communities. 
for a little while, you know, you're in someone else's body because when the protagonist of a well-written novel is, is afraid, your heart is beating faster, right? When the protagonist has something horrible happen to them, you are crying. And I think that for me is empathy and compassion and those are the two highest things, I think, that a human being can achieve in their lives. Venkatraman says she learned those qualities growing up in India. When she was eight years old, her parents separated. It was an event that changed the course of her life. My mother went from being this very wealthy person, very wealthy woman, to being suddenly the person who had to work very hard to keep you know, a house and home together. Venkatraman moved to the United States when she was 20 to attend graduate school. It was an isolating experience for Venkatraman, who came to the States alone. I could not even speak to my mother more than six minutes once a month, okay? So usually it was three minutes once every two weeks. That was all the time I had. When your mom is halfway across the world and she says, are you okay? You say yes, because what else are you going to say, right? She's called Rhode Island home for more than 15 years. Venkatraman lives in Narragansett. But her native India is never far from her mind. Her most recent book, Born Behind Bars, highlights the country's prison conditions. I didn't read the author's note until the end yeah. and came to find out that this was, in fact, inspired by a true story. Can you tell me about that story and how you came across it? I saw a BBC News report about this one child who had been born in jail in India. Well, this woman, um, whom they were talking about, had been in jail for so long that she'd had this son in jail. And I thought, that's shocking and that's horrifying. And when I saw the image of this little boy, he just became a character in my mind. And I saw this little kid, you know, sitting in this dirty, dingy jail cell. Born Behind Bars tells the story of a boy who's released from prison after spending his whole life there with his mom. Padma is the author of many wonderful books, such as A Time to Dance, Climbing the Stairs, and The Bridge Home. Venkatraman recently received an award from the Boston Authors Club for the novel. I could hear his voice breaking through the bars on that jail cell and leaving through the gaps and reaching the sky and the stars because that boy could sing and they could imprison his body, but they could not imprison his mind. They could not imprison his spirit. You gave a very impassioned speech that day at the ceremony. Yeah. Where does that emotion come from? So when I came to this country, I was not even legal drinking age. I came alone. I came by myself. I did not have anybody for miles around that I knew. And I think going from there to being a citizen of this country, whenever, whenever I get an award, any kind of recognition that says, we love your work and we're glad that you are one of us, that is amazing to me. I love the ocean. I grew up in a city near the ocean in India. And I feel really blessed and so lucky that I live in the ocean state now. Venkatraman's love for the ocean brought her to the University of Rhode Island, where she taught oceanography and directed diversity efforts. Her career has taken her around the world, from serving as chief scientist on research cruises in Germany 
to working in laboratories in India. Even though Venkatraman always wanted to be a writer, she says pursuing oceanography allowed her to be financially independent. Was oceanography more of a safety net financially? Is that why you chose to explore that? Yes, although it's an odd choice for a safety net. And I think part of the reason I did that was because it's also my passion. I decided that I wanted to do something no one in my family had ever heard of. I was a bit of a rebel. Uh, and everybody said, what is oceanography in India? And my whole family thought I was a bit bonkers. And, you know, I kind of was, I guess. So I did, decided to do that. That rebellious streak, Venkatraman says, came from being bullied as a child after her parents separated. I felt like when I was a child, I had so much wealth, so much privilege. And then suddenly to lose all of that as a child was something that impacted me in a very deep way. Venkatraman's books are geared for young adults, but that doesn't stop her from exploring some serious subjects. For instance, her novel, The Bridge Home, chronicles the life of homeless children in India while touching on issues such as alcoholism and abuse. What makes you think as you're writing this that these are topics that young adults want to read about? So for one thing, I think I experienced a lot of very traumatic things when I was young. And I think to be able to express that in an honest way, but not a graphic way, is important to me. As a young girl, Venkatraman says she never found a book that mirrored her own life. When she moved to the United States, she fell in love with the country's public library system and feels grateful to see her work there. The fact that a book or something that you write can touch someone's life and change it, that's something I never, never get used to. She says being an Indian-American author allows her to bring a unique voice to the world of young adult fiction. It sounds to me like you are writing the books that you desperately wanted to read as a young girl. Yes, uh, I definitely think that's true. I also think I'm writing the books still that I want my daughter to be able to read or my daughter's generation to be able to read and hopefully for years and years and years to come, you know? And one of the things she loves most about her work is connecting with readers. What's the response you get from readers as you're traveling around the world, specifically in your native India? What do readers say to you about how your work has affected them? I think Seeing your story on the page can be very, very emotionally um, empowering. And I think a lot of children are empowered by that. And I know children who have been abused that then reached out to an adult and went to a safer place because they read The Bridge Home, right? That is that's not even a gift. That is beyond anything that you could even dream for or hope for. Just that uh, the fact that you could touch someone else's life like that in a positive way. And that's what I, that's every time that happens and that has happened, you know, many, many times, that's huge. Where do you see yourself five years from now? I hope I'll be writing books that will still and in even greater numbers, empower young people, you know, empower them, uh, bring those who are not 
safe into safer situations, that would be where I hope I'd end up. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.